I'd like to introduce former U.S. Air Force pilot Captain George E. Nolley. Thank you for contributing this article, a very interesting story by an excellent writer. It was originally published in 1972 and later reproduced on http www.keatlaw.com last year. Enjoy! I turned off my Big Ben alarm clock at 0230, the usual wake-up time for our linebacker mission. When the scheduling board simply indicated special, we knew it would be a 0400 mass briefing at wing headquarters for a bombing mission over North Vietnam. We wouldn't know our target until the mission briefing. The schedule was normally posted at the end of each day's flying, and the previous day I had seen my name listed for the number 4 position in jazz flight for today's special. My weapon systems officer would be Bill Woodworth. F4 pilots quickly become creatures of habit mixed with ritual, and I walk the short distance to the Ubon Officers Club to have my standard breakfast, cheese omelette, toast with butter, and coffee. I had successfully flown 31 counters, missions over North Vietnam, and I wasn't about to change anything without a pretty compelling reason. A few weeks earlier, the Thai waitress had misunderstood me when I had ordered, and brought me a plain omelette. I politely ate it, and the mission on that day was the closest I had come, up until then, to getting shot down. After breakfast, I walked to the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing Headquarters building, and performed my usual routine of stopping by the Intel desk and checking the shoot-down board. The shoot-down board was a large plexiglass-covered board that listed the most recent friendly aircraft losses, written in grease pencil. We could tell, at a glance, if any aircraft had been shot down the previous night, the call sign, aircraft type, and survivor status. There were no friendly aircraft losses over North Vietnam to enemy action in the previous day. That was not surprising. The special for the previous day had been cancelled when the strike leader, my squadron commander, Lt. Col. Brad Sharp, crashed on takeoff when his left tire exploded at 160 knots. He aborted, taking the departure end barrier, and his aircraft caught fire when pieces of the shredded tire pierced his left-wing fuel tank. Brad's emergency egress was delayed when he got hung up by his leg restraint lines. As he sat in his seat, seeing the canopy melting around him, his WSO, Mike Pumphrey, ran back to the burning aircraft and pulled him out, saving his life. As Mike dragged him to a drainage ditch 100 yards away to hunker down, the ejection seats, missiles and, eventually, bombs cooked off. Uban's only runway was out of commission, and the entire linebacker mission, for all bases, was cancelled. Overnight, the runway at Uban was repaired, and our mission was on for this day. The mission briefing was in a large auditorium. The wing commander led the mission briefing, followed by an intel briefing and weather briefing. Slides were projected onto the screen to show the targets on a map of North Vietnam, then reconnaissance photos of the individual targets for the strike flights. Jazz Flight's target was Paul, Petroleum, Oil, Lubricants, Storage near Kep Airfield, north of Hanoi. During the briefing, we all received our mission lineup cards, showing our estimated times en route, ETE, fuel computations, strike frequencies, and flight-to-confliction information. A mass strike over Route Package 6, the area of North Vietnam covering Hanoi, Haiphong and points north, required a massive orchestration effort. The run-in directions, time over target, TOT and egress plan for each of the 16 four-ship strike flights, plus all of the same information for support flights, such as MIG-CAP, were designated to exacting specifications. After the mass briefing, we assembled in our respective squadrons for our individual flight briefings. When I walked into the 25th Tactical Fighter Squadron, my first order of business was to check the flight crew information file book. The SIF was a book that had last-minute changes to procedures and other instructions for air crews. After reading the latest entries in the book, each crew member would initial his SIF card and turn the card over in the vertical card file so that the green side of the card was facing out, instead of the red side. 
That way, the ops officer could instantly see if all the crews were flying with the most current information. The briefing for Jazz flight lasted about 45 minutes. Our flight lead briefed engine start and check-in times, flight join-up, frequencies, tactics, and our munitions load. Today we would each carry two 2,000-pound Mark 84 liters laser-guided bombs. After the briefing we waited our turns for the most important part of the pre-flight. The building that housed our squadron had not been designed for a mass launch of 32 crew members all needing to use the latrine at the same time. It was a three-holer, and everyone always badly needed to use the facility before a mission up north. It was a major bottleneck to our individual plans. After that essential stop we went by the life support section to leave our personal items, such as wedding rings, wallets and anything else we wouldn't need for the flight, in our lockers. The only thing I would carry in my pocket was my ID card and my Geneva Convention card. And, of course, I had my dog tags around my neck. Then we would pick up our G-suits, helmets, survival vests and parachute harnesses and board the bread truck for transportation to the flight line, with a quick stop at the armory to retrieve our .38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolvers. Our tie driver always had a cooler stocked with plastic flasks of cold water, and we would grab several and put them in leg pockets of our G-suits. I also grabbed several piddle packs. The F-4 did not have a relief tube, so we carried piddle packs. The piddle pack was a small plastic bag with a 2-inch by 6-inch sponge inside and a spout at one end. When you use this portable urinal, the entire assembly would expand to about the size of a football. This flight was scheduled to be a bit longer than the standard mission, so I grabbed three piddle packs. There were two ways to get to pack 6 from Uban, right turns and left turns. With right turns, the missions are about 45 minutes shorter. Head north over Laos, refuel on Green Anchor, make a right turn at Thud Ridge and proceed to the target. Left turns takes us to the east coast of Vietnam, and proceed north feet wet, then make a left turns toward Vinh to strike our targets. Today we would make left turns. We launched off at dawn and headed into the rising sun. Our route of flight took us east across Laos to Da Nang, then north to the Gulf of Tonkin, then northwest to our target in the area of Kep. Our refueling would be along purple anchor as we headed north for pre-strike and south for post-strike. One of my rituals during every refueling, in between hookups, was to break out one of the water flasks, finish off an entire pack of Tums, and fill one of the piddle packs. Using the piddle pack in the seat of the Phantom was easier said than done. It required a bit of maneuvering. I handed the jet over to Bill, my WSO, as I loosened my lap belt, loosened the leg straps on my parachute harness, and unzipped my flight suit from the bottom. Then I did my best to fill the piddle pack without any spillage. Our route was already taking us feet wet, and I wasn't looking forward to becoming feet wet in any other respect. Bill flew smoothly, and I finished my business with no problem, and took control of the airplane again for our refueling top-offs. We conducted our aerial ballet in total radio silence as our four airplanes cycled on and off the refueling boom, flying at almost 400 knots, as we approached the refueling drop-off point. When we finished refueling, we switched to strike frequency and headed north-northwest to the target area. Typical for a linebacker mission, strike frequency was pretty busy. There were bandit calls from Disco, the airborne early warning bird, and EC-121 orbiting over the Gulf of Tonkin. And Sam brakes. And, of course, the ever-present AAA anti-aircraft artillery that produced fields of instant blooming dandelions at our altitude. We pressed on. In the entire history of the Air Force, and the Army Air Corps before it, No strike aircraft has ever aborted its mission due to enemy reaction, and we were not about to set a precedent. Weather in the target area was severe clear, and flight lead identified the target with no problem. We closed into fingertip formation, with three feet of separation between wingtips. Jazz flight, arm them up. 
We made a left orbit to make our run-in on the designated attack heading. Then a left roll-in with 135 degrees of bank. My element lead, Jazz 3, was on lead's right wing, and I was on the far right position in the formation. Our roll-in and roll-out was in close fingertip position, which put me at negative G loading during the roll-out. During negative G formation flying, the flight controls worked differently. I was on the right wing and a little too close to element lead, so I needed to put the stick to the left to increase spacing. Totally unnatural. At the same time, I was hanging against my lap belt, which I had forgotten to tighten when I had finished my piddle pack filling procedure. My head hit the canopy, as dust and other detritus from the cockpit floated up into my eyes. But I maintained my position. We rolled out on the correct run-in heading, and reached our delivery parameters right on profile. 500 knots at 20,000 feet. Lead called our release. Jazz flight, ready, ready, pickle. We all pushed our bomb release pickle buttons on our stick grips at the same time, and eight 2,000-pound bombs guided together to the target that was being illuminated by the laser designator in the lead's pave knife pod, guidance performed by his WSO. Immediately after release, we performed the normal 4G pullout. And I was instantly in excruciating pain. I screamed out in pain on our hot mic interphone. Are you okay? Bill called. I think I've been shot in the balls. I screamed. Then, I realized what had happened. I had carelessly neglected to tighten my lap belt and parachute harness leg straps after relieving myself during the refueling. My body had shifted, and my testicles had gotten trapped between the harness and my body. With a 4G pull, my 150-pound body was exerting 600 pounds of pressure on the family jewels. As soon as I knew what the problem was, I unloaded the aircraft to zero Gs, to try to readjust myself. But I was still headed downhill, and Mother Hanoi was rushing up to me at 500 knots. And I was getting further out of position in my formation. So I gritted my teeth and pulled. When we got onto the post-strike tanker, I adjusted myself, but the damage had been done. I was in agony all the way back to Uban. As soon as I landed, I went to see the flight surgeon and told him what had happened. He told me to drop my shorts and show him my injury. Wow. I'd heard you guys had big ones, but these are even larger than I expected. I looked down, and saw that my testicles were swollen to the size of large oranges. The flight surgeon put me on total bed rest orders, telling me I could only get out of bed to use the bathroom until the swelling subsided. While I was flat on my back, waiting for the pain to subside, I couldn't get that stupid old joke out of my head, the one where the kid goes into a malt shop and asks for a sundae with nuts, and the clerk asks, do you want your nuts crushed? And the kid has a wisecrack answer. All of a sudden, it didn't seem so funny. After about five days I was feeling much better. The flight surgeon had offered to submit my injury for a purple heart, but I declined. For starters, my injury was not due to enemy action, it was due to my carelessness. And I wasn't too keen on standing in front of the entire squadron at my next assignment while the admin officer read the citation to accompany the award of the purple heart. On that day, Captain Nolly managed to crush. No thanks. A few months later, the flight surgeon showed up at our squadron. You're famous, and made me a famous author, he beamed, as he held up the current issue of Aerospace Medicine magazine. In the article, he recounted how a 27-year-old pilot had experienced a strangulation injury to his testes that came very close to requiring amputation. Castration. There was no use in telling you and making you worry, when there was nothing we could do for you other than bed rest, and wait to see if you healed, he commented. Well, it's been 41 years now, and I'm at an age where I don't embarrass as easily. More important, I sired three healthy children several years later, so the equipment works just fine, thank you. Lots of guys have great there I was stories of their time in Vietnam. I racked up 100 missions over the north, 
and had some exciting missions. This mission was not the most exciting, but was certainly the most memorable. George Nolly is a retired Air Force pilot and retired from United Airlines as a B-777 captain. He currently instructs in B-777S and B-787S, and is the author of the Hamfist novel series, available at Amazon in Kindle and printed formats. George Nolly's Hamfist Books Thank you for taking the time to read this. Should you have a question or comment about this article, then scroll down to the comment section below to leave your response. If you want to learn more about the Vietnam War and its warriors, then subscribe to this blog and get notified by email or your feed reader every time a new story, picture, video or changes occur on this website. The button is located at the top right of this page. I've also created a poll to help identify my website audience. Before leaving, can you please click here and choose the one item best describing you? Thank you in advance.